Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today is Friday, June 3rd, and if you didn't get the memo, what you're supposed to care vehemently about this week is firearms and the need to immediately ban what are called assault weapons, and I just can't help thinking about Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men, is there another kind? I, I can't imagine what kind of weapon would not be an assault weapon. And really what Democrats mean when they say assault weapon is a weapon that looks scary, but really doesn't do anything different than many other weapons that have the same capabilities. Now, you'll hear gun control advocates indiscriminately use the term automatic weapons, which have been illegal since the 1930s. Not that they should be, because if you believe in the Second Amendment, then, of course, you should be against the ban on automatic weapons for civilians. But we'll get into that in a minute. But the difference between the two, for anybody who doesn't know them, is that a semi-automatic weapon only fires one bullet per trigger pull. Okay, that's why it's semi-automatic, but it will reload itself without you having to do any kind of recycling like you would have to with a shotgun where you've got to pump it again before to get another bullet in the chamber. Where an automatic weapon... Either it will fire continuously as long as you hold the trigger down or at least in three bullet bursts. And that's generally what soldiers have on the battlefield are automatic weapons. So already as it stands today, an AR-15 is not a weapon of war. It's not the same kind of weapon that a soldier on the battlefield has. Even if it's made black and scary and looks something like it in shape, it's not an automatic weapon. But that whole line of discussion is really kind of irrelevant because the purpose of the Second Amendment is for the civilians to have weapons of war. That's why it was written. That's why it was ratified. So it was not written so that you could go hunting, and it was not written 
so that you could defend yourself against criminals. That happens to be an ancillary benefit of keeping and bearing arms, that if someone breaks into your house, you can defend yourself and your home and your family. That's not why they wrote the Second Amendment. They wrote the Second Amendment so that you would have the ability to shoot at the U.S. military if it was necessary because the government had become oppressive. And we're going to do a little history to make that clearer, but let me just also dispel this dumb argument that, well, you're never going to fight the U.S. military unless you have fighter jets and nuclear weapons. No, I think I've said on a previous podcast, you can ask any military veteran of the Iraq war whether or not the people that resisted the U.S. occupation had fighter jets or nuclear weapons. No, they didn't. Yet still, after 10 years, that country was still not completely pacified. So you can bomb people all you want, but if you want to oppress people and really control them on a day-to-day basis, you got to do that door-to-door with troops in the streets. And that's exactly what you cannot do with an armed citizenry. Not to say that the armed citizenry is going to be as capable as a trained soldier in fighting, but there's a heck of a lot more of those civilians. And that's why they don't want those civilians to be armed in case they do have to enforce some edict that people would not accept. But in terms of all of the statements that the president and gun control advocates have made about limits on the Second Amendment, there are no limits on the Second Amendment. And I don't care what the Supreme Court has found. The Supreme Court has been terrible on limiting the power of the federal government over its history. The Second Amendment was written so that the federal government could have absolutely no power over regulation of the right to keep and bear arms. The states do have the ability to regulate the right to keep and bear arms under the Constitution to the extent that their own constitutions don't prohibit that. Now, the only caveat to that is that this interpretation of the 14th Amendment that it brought the Bill of Rights to bear upon the states, which is pretty much accepted by the establishment now, just like the New Deal. So that doesn't mean that there's any validity to this acceptance, but what's called the incorporation doctrine. Well, in this case, it cuts in favor of the pro-gun crowd, because according to that interpretation, the federal government can strike down laws that it believes violates the federal First Amendment. But that's not the way the Constitution was originally written. And there's plenty of dissidents out there who don't believe the incorporation doctrine is valid. But that's kind of a side point. The main point I wanted to make was the way that the Second Amendment and all of the amendments in the Bill of Rights came about And it's very obvious when you just step back and look at a timeline that the idea of the Second Amendment was for the common civilians, non-government employees. Those are the militia, okay? The National Guard is not a militia because the National Guard is paid by the government. So the militia are non-government employees. That means everybody else. And that's how it was understood at the time that they wrote the Second Amendment. And that was the reality on the ground, was that 
when the militia was called up, it was at the time, every able-bodied man. So not professional soldiers, not professional policemen, but farmers, mechanics, merchants, they are the militia. We are the militia. Unless you're getting paid by the government or a government, then you are supposed to be the militia. And that is the militia that's referred to in the Second Amendment. Now, why did they pass the Second Amendment? They passed the Second Amendment just like all the other amendments because at the time of the ratification of the Constitution, the states were very suspicious that the federal government was going to become just as tyrannical as the British government had been. And you have to remember that at the time the Constitution was ratified, that each one of the states was its own country, just like France or Great Britain at the time. And just to hammer that point home, all you need to do is go to the Declaration of Independence and read what it says. It says that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, state being the same synonym for nation, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. Okay, so they could do all the things that France could do. They could do all the things that Spain or any other country could do. So North Carolina, at the time of the Declaration of Independence, became its own country. And that's how it was understood. Now, they drafted the Articles of Confederation in 1778, but they didn't ratify that until 1783 after they had won the Revolutionary War, concluded peace with the King of Great Britain, who, by the way, listed out all of the colonies and called them out separately, not as one united country, but as 13 separate independent countries themselves. That's how the treaty was written. Now, when you read the Articles of Confederation, the Agreement between those independent countries is called a firm league of friendship. So it's a lot closer to an alliance than it is to any kind of consolidated nation. And that's why when they called the convention in Philadelphia in 1787, large parts of the country were very suspicious of this. Patrick Henry wouldn't even go to the convention. He said he smelled a rat in Philadelphia. And what they were suspicious of was that people like Alexander Hamilton and James Madison were going to try to form a government like that of King George III's, which was going to oppress them just as they had felt they had been oppressed by the British government. So the preamble to the Constitution says we're going to form a more perfect union so it's going to be something more than the Articles of Confederation, something they had no authorization to do, by the way, at that convention. They were sent there to merely fix some problems with the Articles of Confederation, but they ended up drafting this whole new government. 
And the answer to that not being a, a coup d'etat is that it was then sent to the states to ratify. So that was the answer to those critics who said, no one gave you permission to draft this new government with a president and this separate court and these three branches. And the answer given by the Federalists was, well, we're sending it to the states so they can turn it down if they don't like it. But lots of suspicion remained about this new government, that it was just going to be another distant government, even though it would be located on the same continent. You have to remember that these states were radically different in some ways. When the Constitution was ratified, there were still three states that had state religions and would for some time after that. And this is what gave rise to the call for a Bill of Rights. Some states would not ratify the Constitution until they were promised that a Bill of Rights would be added to the Constitution to place further prohibitions on the government than the document itself already placed. And the Federalists argued against the Anti-Federalists on this, saying that, look, the Constitution has strictly enumerated powers, so it can't do anything that's not written into the Constitution. Therefore, a Bill of Rights is superfluous, not only unnecessary, but dangerous, because people might start thinking backwards about the Constitution, thinking that the federal government could do anything it wanted that wasn't prohibited by the Bill of Rights. And let's face it, they were right about that. That's how most people think today. They think that the Bill of Rights doesn't prohibit something that the federal government has the power to do it, and that's not true. The federal government is only supposed to have the powers that are enumerated in the Constitution. And really, from an academic perspective or legal perspective, the Federalists were right. The Bill of Rights was unnecessary, but thank goodness they put it in there because it's really the, the only good part about the whole document, in my opinion. So, okay. You have these independent countries called North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, New York, Pennsylvania, and they agree to the Articles of Confederation, and they live under them for six years. The relationship is described as a firm league of friendship, which really doesn't have any legal bearing, but that's how they thought about it. And then they have this new government that's going to be a quote-unquote more perfect union. And I should just, as an aside, I don't want to get down too many rabbit trails here, but nothing in the preamble of the Constitution grants any power to the federal government. Really, the preamble to the Constitution reads like this. We, the people of the United States of America, do ordain and establish this Constitution. Everything before the word do in that sentence just tells you why they're ordaining and establishing the Constitution. It doesn't confer any powers. And this is kind of relevant to the Second Amendment because there's a preamble to the Second Amendment that doesn't confer any powers either. And that preamble says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, none of that confers any power on the government. In fact, none of the Second Amendment confers any power. It prohibits power. But we have no end of liars and midwits who interpret that explanatory clause, that explanation for why the federal government's being prohibited from infringing the right to keep and bear arms, that it somehow grants the federal government power to regulate. It does not. 
It tells you why the federal government's not allowed to regulate. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. We help each other when we don't mean to. That's what we call the invisible hand. Something no politician understands. Just leave it up to supply and demand. And follow so one more thing on the state constitutions versus the federal. You have to understand that the bills of rights in all of the state constitutions were there because there were no specifically enumerated powers given to the states. The states could basically make any laws they wanted. So they needed a bill of rights in each one to place limits on those laws so that the state government would not infringe the right to keep and bear arms or infringe the rights to free speech or freedom of religion or deny trial by jury, et cetera, et cetera. So if you go through all the state constitutions, you'll find that these rights are all enumerated. There are six states that do not have an enumerated right to keep and bear arms, and New York State is one of them. So basically, if you don't buy the incorporation doctrine, then New York State would have the right to ban guns completely if it wanted to. But the federal government would not be able to do that. So let's get back to our timeline. So the Constitution is proposed and a Bill of Rights is demanded, even though, strictly speaking, it doesn't make sense since the Constitution supposedly limits itself. (laughs) And James Madison, the guy who wanted a much more powerful federal government, is tagged to draft up this Bill of Rights. So that's problematic right away. Although I think James Madison was very honorable because if you know a little bit about the history of the way people were thinking and how the Constitutional Convention went, Madison and Alexander Hamilton were pretty much holding hands on how powerful they wanted the federal government to be. But the convention rejected all that. James Madison proposed that Congress could veto state laws. He proposed this just every week during the convention, even on the last day, and it was shot down. I think that our friend Kevin Gutzman, who's an expert on this, 
told me that the very last day it was unanimous, like even his own state voted against this. So he didn't get the government that he wanted or that Alexander Hamilton wanted. Now, the difference between the two men was Madison accepted the decision of the convention to only have a federation, a federal government rather than a national one. Hamilton didn't. He tried to get around the Constitution for the rest of his life. Madison pretty much stuck to the decision of the convention to the extent that he actually vetoed a law that he had drafted himself when he became president because it was about building roads and canals. And although he wanted the federal government to have that power, he recognized that it didn't. Although he wasn't so good on the central bank, which he first opposed and then later on signed into law the second bank of the United States. But In any case, we have all of these states that consider themselves independent countries that had delegated some powers to a federal government, first in the Articles of Confederation and secondly in this Constitution, and kept all the rest to themselves. And that's what the Tenth Amendment is all about. And they wanted that Tenth Amendment to make clear that even though At the ratifying conventions, they had been told the federal government would not exercise any power that was not expressly delegated, that they still wanted that 10th Amendment in there to just say, well, if it wasn't expressly delegated, it's reserved to the states or the people. So you can see a lot of suspicion about this new government, that it's going to be just like the one that they fought a long war to separate themselves from. So when the Bill of Rights was written, what was in their minds or what was in Madison's mind and the people who were helping Madison to draft this? Well, what was in their minds was all the abuses that they had suffered King George. So when you talk about the Fourth Amendment, no unreasonable searches, warrants will contain the specific people or things to be seized. This was because they remembered that during that period, right before the American Revolutionary War, that the British troops were writing their own warrants and just ransacking their houses, looking for any contraband they could find. And so they wrote this Fourth Amendment to say no. You can't do that. You have to be looking for something specific. You've got to have probable cause of some specific crime. You can't do to us what King George did or his troops did when they were occupying us before we became independent. So they want to make sure that didn't happen again. They had those things in mind. Now, some of these rights, of course, grew out of long tradition in English common law, the Magna Carta, etc., etc. But they were thinking specifically about the abuses they had just suffered under the British king and were afraid they'd suffer again under this new government that these rascals, Hamilton and the rest, had foisted upon them. The Third Amendment was written because, in fact, King George had quartered troops among the colonists. There was a practical reason for this. If you're going to send troops over, it's awfully expensive to build new housing, and it takes a long time. And it also has the advantage when you have a soldier of the king in the house where he can keep one ear open and spy on them. So that's why they have the Third Amendment. 
So why did they have the Second Amendment? Well, I did talk about this in a previous podcast, so I won't tell the whole story again, but they had direct experience with the king and his soldiers disarming them. And when I say disarming, they didn't come for their hunting rifles. They came for their cannons. That's why they marched to Concord, and they were successful in depriving the colonists, the non-soldiers, the non-government employees of the cannons that they owned. So whoever's writing Joe Biden's talking points couldn't walk into a more easily disprovable lie than him going around saying, you couldn't own a cannon. And why was it important for the militia, the regular civilians to have weapons of war? Because they were suspicious that the government wasn't in Washington yet because there was no Washington, but the federal government, this new entity, was going to become as oppressive as the British government had been when they were colonies. And so they wanted the civilians to be armed sufficiently that they could fight the regular army if they had to. There is no other reason for the Second Amendment. It wasn't so they could protect themselves against criminals. It wasn't so they could go hunting. It was to shoot at U.S. military personnel if the need arose because that new government was trying to enforce what they really thought was that it was going to think how crazy this conspiracy theory was. They thought that maybe the federal government would not stay limited to the powers enumerated in the Constitution, that it might start acquiring other powers. How crazy could they have been? And by the way, one of the other complaints that the colonists had was that King George III, and I'll read this from the Declaration of Independence as well, has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. So just think about the way that that's worded. In times of peace, standing armies. Contrary to this ridiculous veneration for anybody in a government costume today, the founders were very suspicious of the regular army. They didn't think that there should be ground troops, a standing army in times of peace. An army was something you raised if there was the danger of an approaching war. And when the war was over, you disbanded the army. You didn't keep a large military force because they were afraid that that would oppress them. And true to form, when they raised an army for the quasi-war with France in the 1790s, as soon as peace was concluded, they disbanded the army. In fact, John Adams and the Congress, who were at odds with one another, once Adams achieved peace, then they were kind of jockeying with each other to see who would get credit for disbanding the army. Why? Because the public hated the army. When Thomas Jefferson got elected in 1800, there was no army to disband. So what did he do? He gutted the Navy, cut military spending by 90%. This was the way that people thought back then about the military as something to be suspicious of, how far we've fallen from that. So getting back to the present day, I mean, hey, if you think the Second Amendment should be repealed, well, there is a process built into the Constitution to go in and repeal that amendment. 
But while that amendment stands, there's only one purpose behind it, and that's to allow the citizens to be armed well enough to fight off the military if they come door to door trying to oppress them, as they did after Katrina, by the way, disarming everybody. The people chose not to fight. But that's exactly the kind of situation the Second Amendment was ratified for. And this idea that the militia is actually the National Guard, that's the opposite of the idea of the militia. The whole idea of the militia is these are not regular troops. They're not government employees. If you're a government employee, especially getting paid by the federal government, then no, you're not the militia. The militia, as quoted in the Second Amendment, is supposed to fight with federal troops, not be one of them. And these arguments about, well, why does anybody need an AR-15? Well, because at the very minimum, they would need that to be able to fight off federal troops in their neighborhood, enforcing some unconstitutional or otherwise tyrannical edict. In fact, they should be equipped as well as the federal troops, at least the infantrymen. And then, of course, more midwit commentary. Well, does that mean that you think that civilians should have nuclear weapons? Sure. (laughs) Believe me, you're not going to one-up me on this subject because whatever the government is doing, I'd like to see privatized. And I trust private citizens with something to lose with nuclear weapons a lot more than I trust the government. We need to provide the citizens the opportunity to have automatic weapons. If you believe in the Second Amendment, if you think you can get it repealed, go ahead. Propose an amendment to appeal it, but the 1934 prohibition on automatic weapons is unconstitutional. I don't care what the Supreme Court has said about it, and it's contrary to the whole purpose of the Second Amendment. And like just about everything that's awful about the federal government It occurred during the tyrannical reign of the guy with the cigarette holder and the fake mid-Atlantic accent. Of course, I'm talking about the god-awful FDR. Yes, he's the one that signed the prohibition on automatic weapons. And just like he took the legislative power away from Congress and gave it to himself, he also repealed the Second Amendment for all intents and purposes. Because once you put the civilians at a disadvantage against the infantry, then the Second Amendment is a dead letter. You can talk about hunting all you want. That has nothing to do with it. So that's where I am, folks. Legalize machine guns. We need to repeal that 1934 National Firearms Act. We need to get off defense on the Second Amendment and go back on offense. So that's going to be all for today, folks. Coming up next week, I've got Angela McArdle coming on to speak with me. She'll probably be here for the Wednesday episode. She is the new chair of the National Libertarian Party, kind of the tip of the spear of a wave of victories for the Mises Caucus. So we'll talk next week with Angela about what the Mises Caucus is and what they're going to try to change about the Libertarian Party. So that should be a great conversation. And I am happy to say that my website migration over to the new web host is finally complete. So I will be able to post some regular content in addition to the podcasts starting next week as well. Don't forget that my Patreon is already up and does have some members-only content. That's at patreon.com slash Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. And I've got my first course, Where Do Conservatives Come From, based on my 
2015 book, Where Do Conservatives and Liberals Come From? That's going to be available next week as well. I'm going to make that free for my VIP Patreon subscribers. So a whole bunch of good news coming and new stuff coming up for next week. Everybody have a great weekend and I'll see you on Monday. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.